This is Leaving Laodicea with Steve McCraney, and this is a podcast for those who realize that apathetic, lukewarm, flannel graph faith just isn't going to cut it in the chaos that surrounds us today. We need something more, something different. So join us as we learn how to leave Laodicea behind. If you had a chance to listen to uh, the message we had on Tuesday, we were talking about John the Baptist and about the beginning of his message and how Jesus basically preached the same message, which was, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And what we focused on on Tuesday was this idea of the kingdom, um, the gospel of the kingdom, the kingdom message, why that was so important in the teaching of Jesus. And if you remember, we, we went through some of the scriptures looking at how many times the Lord talked about the kingdom. And then we talked about the fact that the kingdom is something we hardly ever talk about today. There was a, there was a compelling commitment that the early disciples had to Christ and to his kingdom that sometimes we forget about today or seems foreign in our preaching today. And I was thinking this week about totally committed people, people that we, we view as like overwhelmed and obsessed with something. And some of, the, some of that is good, and some of that is not so good. For example, I thought about Olympic athletes. They begin as a very young age. If you're an Olympic swimmer, that's all you do. You spend four, five, six hours a day in the pool swimming, all during the time you could be going to Carowinds or having fun because you have this goal, this obsession, this total commitment of being an Olympic athlete. On the other hand, you have, on the negative side, you have terrorists. Terrorists leave their home and they leave their family. They leave the allegiance to their country and and they join some sort of evil organization and they're willing to strap bombs on themselves just to be able to carry out the perverted views of their terrorist organization. We have ideologues. We've seen a lot of that in our government lately, where it doesn't matter what the facts are, it doesn't matter what other people say, we have this vision, we have this understanding of how things should be, we hate Trump, we love Trump, we, and, and you, you can't change their mind, you, you can't even persuade them with facts. And then we have what we call cultic religious groups. An occultic religious group is something that is beyond the norm. They don't. They just don't meet on Sundays. Instead, they do kind of weird things, like they like they take vacations together and they they spend a lot of time together. And and their allegiance to each other or to a particular doctrine is beyond what we feel comfortable with. So we, as the Orthodox Christians, would call them cultish. You know, we have other names for people like that. We call them activists, or we call them fanatics, or we call them extremists. And that was exactly the description of the early church back during the days of Christ. These people left their Jewish religion and upbringing, and they lived in an oppressive society at that time, and yet they committed themselves not only to a man, but they committed themselves to a vision of a kingdom that was far greater than anything they had ever imagined. As a matter of fact, the enemies of Christianity at that time talked about the fact that these people had turned the world literally upside down because of their extreme, in their view, cultish views following this Messiah. And Jesus offered them nothing that the world offered. 
He, he didn't offer them riches. He didn't offer them a really nice place to worship with smoke machines and praise bands or all that kind of stuff. He didn't offer them prominence in the society they were at. He didn't even allow them to stay in their own homes. When you followed Christ, you left everything. You abandoned everything for him. And nobody does that unless they're a fanatic, unless they're an extremist, unless they're an activist the way we view them today. Instead, our view of Christianity is the fact that, you know, we, we kind of embrace it in our life to make our life a little bit better. I was thinking a lot about Christianity in the West and the church in the West, and I was thinking about the various camps that we fall into. And, and I noticed that if you use broad categories um, in defining Christianity today, you've got kind of two camps here. One camp, and again, we're not talking about how people get saved and what happens once they are saved and how they view their life in Christ. The first camp, of course, is people who understand their relationship with Jesus as kind of an allegiance to um, external rule-keeping. In other words, I came to Christ by faith, and I came to Christ through grace, but the reality is in order to keep him happy or in order to be a successful Christian, I have to keep an external group of rules. And so I'm going to be very committed to not doing this or doing this. And, and you know, there's a huge segment of Christianity that falls into that category. The second group or the second camp are those people who understand that a relationship with Jesus does nothing more than just supplement their busy lives. And so they can kind of take it or leave it. They go to a club meeting. They go to some sort of business association meeting. They go to their kids' little league or or soccer team practice. And they also come to church on Sunday because Christ hasn't really radically changed their life but it's, it's just something that they do, and it's something that's good, and there's no radical commitment. There's no focus like an Olympic athlete or an activist or an extremist, and nobody would ever call us a fanatic because we're just pretty much like everybody else. And Christianity today, it kind of falls into those two categories, but in the New Testament, there was, there was a third camp. There was there was a camp that was made up of people who, who, whose relationship with Christ was not motivated by guilt or condemnation or shame or religious duty for, for not keeping these external rules that they placed upon themselves. There was no fear of hell. There was no hope of heaven. There was no you know, great sugar stick or something of that nature to, to make people motivated. It was, it was different. It was, it was motivated by this compelling overwhelming sight of this person of Jesus Christ and this irresistible power and beauty of the kingdom in which he offered. I mean, when Jesus first approached his disciples, he pretty much offered them nothing. And he said, follow me. And they left everything to follow him. Was his personality that charismatic? Wouldn't you want to kind of see how it played out first? He hadn't done a whole lot of miracles yet. The the disciples that left and followed him hadn't been privy to his in-depth teaching. All he talked about was the heralding of this incredible kingdom, this kingdom in which a king sits on his, on its, on his throne, a, a kingdom that is going to change everything. 
It was this gospel of the kingdom that was preached. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Matthew 13, it starts talking about these kingdom parables. The kingdom of heaven is like, the kingdom of heaven is like, the kingdom of heaven is, is like a man who searches for fine pearls. When he finds one, sells all to, uh, to acquire this kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is like a, a person who finds a treasure hidden in a field and sells everything that he has to buy that field in order to acquire that treasure. It's all about the kingdom. And very seldom today do we ever hear preaching about the kingdom of God and what it's all about because we've substituted it for another gospel, a gospel that says if you say a prayer or believe some historical facts about Jesus, that you're nominally more moral than you were before, that you've got this get-out-of-hell-free card and you're going to go to heaven, and that's all there is to the gospel message because what happens on earth really doesn't matter. But in the New Testament time, those who embraced the gospel of the kingdom left everything for that kingdom, and today we don't require people to leave anything to come to Christ, and very few people leave nothing. The gospel of the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom. You know, when we think about the word gospel, in our interpretation today, the way we view it, the gospel is basically just the good news, the evangelistic message of the fact that Jesus came to forgive us of our sins. He died for our sins, and therefore, if we place our faith in him, that he will fill us with the Holy Spirit, forgive us our sins, and we'll be saved and spend eternity with him. We talk about preaching the gospel, the gospel message, and it's always about salvation. It's always about what Christ has done for us and how we can appropriate that in our life. And originally, in the Roman Empire, in secular Greek, when we looked at the word gospel or the word evangelize, it had nothing to do with that message. That was a message that the church came and basically took that word and gave it a new meaning. Back then, the word gospel, the word good news, was when a new emperor had been installed, and they brought this herald into the town, and the herald was standing there in the square, and he was proclaiming about the new emperor, the new king, informing them that everything had changed. There's a new era of peace and prosperity, salvation, and blessing because Rome had installed a new king. And then then the herald would exhort the people of the town to get on their knees and pay homage and worship to the new king. So when the disciples started preaching about the gospel of the kingdom, that's exactly the context in which they were speaking. They were preaching about the heralding of a new king that had come to bring us eternal life. It was the announcement that the disciples preached. It was a heralding that Jesus of Nazareth was now Lord, was now King, launching a new era of peace and salvation and and blessing. And because of this new King that had come, to you to take away the the King that usurped the authority, we're not under Satan's domain anymore. The new King had come, ushering His kingdom. Everything had changed. Everything had changed. And these disciples left everything to follow this new king who was preaching about a kingdom that was coming to to change everything. It's a message that we very, very seldom ever preach today. 
we don't talk about kings and we don't talk about kingdoms because as Americans and entrepreneurs and, and people who are quite prideful in nature, we don't want to have a king. We don't want to have a kingdom. We don't want to have a ruler. We don't want to have an authority over us. We want to be in charge of everything because after all, we live in the Laodicean church age, which means I rule, the people rule. It's all about us. But the word gospel meant something different back then. So what I did is I went to Blue Letter Bible, and I just put the word gospel in there, and I started in Matthew, and I started looking at all the phrases that are associated with the word gospel. And I just went through Matthew all the way to the book of Revelation. It didn't take long. And here's what I came up with. This is how the word gospel is used in the Scripture. It's called the gospel of the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It's known as the gospel of God, the gospel of the grace of God, the gospel of his Son, the gospel of Christ, the gospel of peace, the gospel of the glory of Christ, the gospel of your salvation, and finally, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. And if you'll notice, it it talks about a gospel of the kingdom. It talks about the good news of a son. It talks about the good news of God. And then it talks about the gospel of the glory of the son of God. Totally different than the salvation message only that we associate with the gospel. And if you'll spend some time looking at all those gospel references in the New Testament, you will find that pretty much the way they're used by, the, by Paul and Peter and, and the gospel writers is they pretty much are different names for the same message. And the same message is a king has come, the Christ has come, and he's taking back the world that has been the domain of Satan, and he is bringing in citizens into his kingdom of which you and I are privileged enough to have been chosen and invited. And the other amazing thing about this gospel kingdom is the fact that Christ rules his kingdom not like Satan does and not like our rulers do today. Our rulers rule their kingdoms by intimidation, by force, by fear. And many adherents to even Christianity are are motivated by fear and guilt and shame. But when Christ rules his kingdom, he rules it not by compulsion, but he rules it by glory. It's it's not that Jesus told the disciples, leave everything, abandon everything, and follow me or else. Instead, they got a glimpse of the glory of who he was and of what he offered. And this kingdom and this person, this, this son of God in human flesh was so compelling and what he revealed to them about himself was so overwhelming that everything else paled in comparison because of the glory they had seen. I was looking at Scripture. I was looking at the Father, Son, and, and the Holy Spirit, the, 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 the triune God here, and I find that all through Scripture we see them associated with glory. God the Father is spoken of as the God of glory in Acts chapter 7, and he's called the Father of glory in Ephesians chapter 1. God the Father is the God of glory. Jesus Christ is called the Lord of glory in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. The Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of glory in 1 Peter chapter 4. The eternal Godhead is characterized by 
glory. And once we see this glory of Christ and the wonder of his kingdom, then everything changes in our life, then our motivation changes, then our desires change because we want to be associated with the king, our king, King Jesus. He's no longer a historical figure, but he's someone that we can literally adore and we long to be with. He's someone we're willing to abandon everything and follow. And the message that was preached by the disciples was just that message. Satan's kingdom is ruled by fear, and the kingdom of Christ is ruled by glory. Now, let me show you how this works. God created these angels, this myriad of angels, and he created those before he created the earth, and he created those in eternity past. We don't even know when. But we do have inferences in scriptures that teach us that somehow, some way, Lucifer was able to convince a third of the angels to follow him. We see this in a passage in Revelation in Isaiah. And then all of a sudden, God cast these angels out, these fallen angels down to earth. And of course, Lucifer is now Satan, and the fallen angels are now following him. And, and we see all that, and we realize that the angels obviously had free will, and the angel, angels made a decision to reject Christ. But what keeps the other angels still in obedience to him? Why do the other angels still serve, and yet a third of the angels chose not to? It's not because of compulsion. It's not because God has forced them to, but it's because they have seen his glory and they are captivated by it. I mean, why did the 12, the early disciples, leave everything to follow him? We find that answer in first chapter of John, verse 14. Listen very carefully. It says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. In other words, we, we caught a glimpse of this glory of Christ, and we realized that he was full of the glory of the Father, full of grace and full of truth, and there was nothing on light and nothing in, in life that compared with that. They became compelled, they became driven, they became single-focused, as negative as it may sound, they became obsessed with Christ. And therefore, they were to leave everything and embrace his kingdom because they had a new ruler and a new king that, that was greater than, than Satan himself, that was greater than any temporal authority on the earth right now. And this king had given them promises to, to have faith in him, and it was, it was overwhelming to them. But sometimes it's not overwhelming to us. So how do we... How do, we, how do we move past where we are to get a glimpse of what this king is all is like and what this, this kingdom is like? To move beyond just allegiance to Christ versus an obsession with Christ. To move beyond our, yes, I'm a Christian, to know I'm a citizen of the king of kings and the Lord of lords. I'm a citizen in his kingdom. How do we move beyond that? And what I thought we would do for the next little time that we're together is, is we would just look at a couple passages in Scripture. We'll begin in Matthew. We'll actually just stay in Matthew and, and kind of go from chapter 4 forward and try to, to get a glimpse of who this Jesus is. I'm, I want you to imagine that 
you were with him, that you were watching this, that you were, you were seeing what he was doing. You were trying to relate to his personality. You were, you were able to glean his love and his, what this, the rules of this kingdom was all about by the way he interacted with other people. Or try to put yourself in the place of these other people who come to Christ and he treats them in a way like no one has ever treated them. He treats them like, like their new king has promised them. And if we can just get a feel for that, maybe slowly over the next couple of weeks, we can, we can see Christ begin to well up in us stronger than he ever has before. So that at the end of this self-isolation period that we're having, when we're able to convene together and gather together as a, as a church body face to face, Every one of us will be changed by the compelling beauty and glory of our King and realize that the gospel message is the gospel message about his kingdom and how through faith in, in Christ through grace that we can be citizens and have entrance into that kingdom. We'll begin in Matthew. Matthew chapter 4. Jesus is being tempted by Satan, and when the temptation is over and the ministers, uh, the angels come and minister to him, he begins to begin his ministry, and his words were the same as John the Baptist. Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, it says, From that time Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom, my kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, is at hand. And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother, casting nets into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. Why? Why would they do that? Why would anybody in their right mind do that? Now, they know who Jesus was. They, they, let's assume that they knew that John the Baptist had pointed and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's been gone for six weeks now because he's been tempted for 40 days in the wilderness. All of a sudden, he comes back. There's no miracles that are recorded in Matthew as of yet. There's no great compelling sermons that he's preached. He just walks up to them in the middle of their busy day, mending their nets because they're fishermen, and he walks in and says, I want you to leave everything, everything, and follow me. Or, or maybe, maybe they just interpreted it that way. Follow me, not haphazardly, not adding me to your life. I don't want you to follow me on your days off. I want you to follow me now, and I will make you fishers of men. I will change what you're doing in the material world to teach you to do the same thing in the spiritual world. And they immediately, there was no debate. There was no, let, let me go take care of my family. Let me go tell my wife what's going on. Let me see if I can sell my business. Let, let me, there was none of that immediately. They left their nets and followed him. Why? Well, what was the message? What, what was it that compelled them to do that? Was it his charismatic personality? Well, he, Scripture says we only have about nine words that he spoke. Was it the promise of the kingdom? Was it, was it the view of riches on earth? Well, none of that's implied. What was it about him the beauty and the glory of him 
that made them realize following him was greater than anything the world offered. Verse 21. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in a boat with their father, Zebedee, mending their nets, and he called them. Doesn't say what he doesn't record exactly what he says, probably the same thing he told Peter and Andrew, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. And Jesus went about all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogue, preaching, note this, the gospel of the kingdom. He's not preaching about faith and salvation and not preaching about defeating Rome and he's not preaching about spiritual gifts and he's not preaching about your best life now and he's not preaching about all the stuff that we preach about today. He didn't open up Isaiah and Jeremiah and do an expositional study of those verses. He talked about the kingdom. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He calls two sets of disciples and then he goes through all the countryside preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of diseases among the people and multitudes followed him. What was it? What is this gospel of the kingdom? Well, The next three chapters pretty much lays that out for us. Jesus talks about the rules in his kingdom. Someone takes something from you, give them more. Someone compels you to do something unjustly, go a little bit further. Someone mistreats you and punches you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. Forgive everyone who wants to be forgiven and give to everyone who asks and, and love other people more than you love yourself. And don't worry about wealth or don't worry about striving for things in this world. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and he'll take care of all those things. Don't build your life on the sand. Build your life on the rock. And for three chapters in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus lays out for them what this life in the kingdom was all about. And then when the red print ends, and we pick back up with the black print in Matthew chapter 8, Jesus begins to model what that life in the kingdom was all about. First thing that happens is a leper comes up to him. I mean, why a leper? Why not just some person is struggling with, you know, PTSD or, or is bipolar or has a hearing impairment? Why a leper? Why, why the most disgusted and disdained person other than a Roman in all of the Jewish culture? Why someone that if Jesus even embraced him and got close to him to minister to him and heal him, that he would be deemed unclean by all those people he's trying to minister to? It's the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And you would think that from today's marketing standards, that what he would want to do is put our best foot forward and not, not alienate our audience or alienate our crowd, but Jesus cared nothing about that. He didn't care about what other people thought. The king had come, and he was instituting the mandates of his kingdom, and he was teaching his disciples that his kingdom is not about the applause of men, but his kingdom is about doing the will of God. And so the first person that approaches him that Matthew records was a leper, easily going to isolate what small following he had. And when he came down from the mountain, chapter 8, verse 1, great multitudes followed him. And behold, a leper 
A leper wheeled his way through the multitudes and they probably separated and they covered their faces and they threw stones at him and cried unclean. And the sea of this multitude was probably parted and this, this leper comes and worships him and says, Lord, if you're willing, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus could have said, I am willing, be clean and go. But instead, he, Jesus put out his hand and touched him before he was clean and says, I am willing, be clean. And immediately after those words and after the touch, his leprosy was cleansed. What are you doing, Lord? What can we learn about your character? What is so compelling about who you are and the love that you have and the desire to serve God and serve others more than offend the crowd? What is it about your kingdom that is so magnanimous that we're willing to leave everything and follow you? That with all the multitudes following you and all the social pressure and the Jewish law and the understanding of the day, by you touching him, now you are technically unclean. In spite of all of that, you cared only about this man. And it was like he was the only person that existed, that you didn't care what other people thought, and you reached out and you touched him and you said, I am willing, be cleansed, and he was. Could you follow somebody like that? Could you love a man like that? Could you leave all for a man like that? Would you love to live in a kingdom ruled by a king like that? First miracle in Matthew, a leper. And then the pendulum swings, and we go to the other extreme, the other most hated and despised person in all of the Jewish culture is a Roman. The Romans, they're Gentiles, they're they're oppressors, they're evil people. We want nothing to do with them. And the Romans themselves knew that that if a Jew would not go into their house or anything like that. And verse 5 says that when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying home, in my home, paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. And Jesus' first response was, I will come and heal him. What? 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 No, 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 no. You can't come in my home. If you come in my home, the rest of the Jews will hate you. I mean, I'm unclean. I understand how the rules are. And, and, and you didn't, Jesus didn't care about what other people thought. He didn't care about the violating some social moray at that time. He only cared about this, this Roman centurion who came to him with a need. But the Roman understood the the danger Jesus was placing himself in socially, and he's the one that said, no, 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 I'm not worthy for you to come to my house. Just say the word, and I know my servant will be healed. And of course, Jesus did and marveled at his faith. And what, what, what kind of king is this? That he heals a leper, and then he heals a Roman, and that by implication, if he loves them that much, all of us, who fall in between those two extremes can expect our king to treat us exactly the same way. Same chapter. He comes into Peter's house. And of course, Peter's mother-in-law is sick with a fever and Jesus comes and picks her up and takes her by the hand and, and touches her hand and the fever left her. And she arose and 
serve them. Later on in that chapter, the disciples had, had gotten into the boat and they had gone out into the ocean and into the sea. And of course, these are veteran fishermen that have done this their entire life and for generations. Verse 24 says, suddenly a great tempest arose so that the boat was covered with waves. I mean, think about that. This, If you've if you've seen pictures of the kind of boats they had back then, they were 25 feet long. They're about six or seven feet wide. They're not large at all. And they're out in the middle of the sea, and they're, they're, it's, it's, it's very rough. The waves are breaking over the, the area. The, the, the people in the boat are absolutely soaked. They're holding on to the mast. They're doing the very best they can. They're frightened, yet Jesus, Jesus is in the back asleep. What kind of king is this? We're afraid for our very lives. We're tormented with fear and we're veteran fishermen. And yet our king, our Lord, who cares about the lepers and cares about the Romans and cares about us is asleep. The stuff that petrifies us doesn't even wake him from his peaceful slumber. What kind of man is this? Can I love a man like this? Can I follow a man like this? Is a relationship with a man like this worth more than everything that I have? To them, yes. To us, I don't know. We struggle because we don't view it as the gospel of the kingdom. We view it as all about us, my salvation, what I want, what I need, my best life now. Chapter 9, there was a, Jesus is teaching, and there was a paralytic, been paralyzed, can't move his arms, can't move his legs, dreadful situation back then, and they brought him before Jesus, and when he saw their faith, he looked at the paralytic, and he used it as a teaching tool, and he said, be of good cheer, your sins are forgiven. And the people that are there said within themselves, who, who in the world? nobody can forgive sins but God alone. This man is, uh, is preaching blasphemy. And Jesus, of course, knew what was in their heart. And so he said, what is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and pick up your mat and go home? Anyone can say your sins are forgiven, and nobody can see that that's really happening. But if I were to say something like, rise, pick up your mat and go home, then you will know immediately whether I'm a false prophet or not. And so, so that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, in this great teaching tool, he turns around to the paralytic and says, Arise, take up your bed and go home. And he arose and departed to his house, and the multitude marveled. Jesus' primary goal here is to teach about the fact that he has the power to the Pharisees and the religious leaders at that time and and the naysayers. He has the power to forgive sins. And yet he didn't forget the object of his lesson and still healed this man. Can Can you follow someone like that? And then the very next story, in in verse number 9 of chapter 9, Jesus decides to call one of his disciples. And we know he's called 
James and John. We know he's called Peter and Andrew. I mean, they were fishing, and he said, follow me. And now he goes, and he calls the dreg of society, the one the other Jewish person that they hated worse than anyone. First, you have the leper who has leprosy from no fault of his own, although they believed that it was some sin that he had in his life. Then you have the Romans over here, which is a Gentile, which is devoid of the covenant of God. And then you have the betrayer. You have a Jew that has sold his life out for money and actually persecutes other Jews by exhorting taxes from them. You have Matthew. And Jesus chooses Matthew, a tax collector, to follow him. And Jesus passed on from there and saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. And so he arose and followed him. He arose and followed him. Why? What are you saying? Who gets entrance into your kingdom? Is it just the Hollywood elite? Is it just people that make $100,000 a year? Is it those people like sacrificial lambs that have to be totally unblemished and very pretty and, and all look like some sort of movie star? Who gets entrance into your kingdom? Everyone that he calls. And it doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter the the weight of sin on you, whether it's a leper or a Roman or a, a one who chose this life as a tax collector. I offer to come into my kingdom. And if you respond to the invitation to be a citizen, as he talked about it, Paul talked about it in Ephesians chapter three, a citizen of my kingdom, then everything changes. Everything changes. Same chapter, and I'm just going to do two more of these. Same chapter. There's a Jewish leader whose daughter was uh, had died. Um, I can't imagine what that must be like. I can't imagine how long that she was sick and how they must have prayed, and, and, and now all of a sudden she had died. I mean, it was over. It was totally over. Verse 18 says, while, they, while he spoke these words, behold, a ruler came and worshiped him, saying, my daughter has just died. You know, it's one thing to ask someone to heal the sick, but when your daughter has died, it, it game over. It's, it's, it's finished. There's really nothing more we can do. My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her. I'm asking you to touch the dead body of my daughter. I'm asking you to violate the Jewish law to make yourself unclean for a season. I'm asking you to do something that I wouldn't ask anyone else to do. Come lay your hand on her and she will live I'm not asking you to heal her, which takes a certain element of faith, but I'm asking you to raise her from the dead. I mean, only God can do that. And and I'm, and I'm even presenting it to you as an affirmation. Lord, come, lay your hand on her, and she will live. I know she will live because I know who you are. And Jesus rose and followed him, and so did his disciples. What kind of God is this? What kind of king is this that he heals people who are sick incurably, like the, like the leper? He calls people who no one else wants, who everyone else despises and disdains, and brings them into a, an exalted position in his kingdom as one of the 12, like Matthew. He even 
He even is willing to go into the house of a Roman and and minister to his servant because it's just how much he loves people. And and now this, this Jewish leader had come and was asking him to raise his daughter from the dead, and he freely went with him. He didn't say, man, that can't be done. You should have caught me earlier. There's nothing I can do. Oh, there'll be a, 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 she'll be healed in heaven. None of that. Jesus rose and followed him, and so did his disciples. And on the way there, you know the story, there's this woman who has this issue of blood for years, for over a decade. I mean, she constantly was bleeding. She was constantly unclean. She, she'd spent all the money on doctors and no one could help her and no one wanted to be around her. And she was, it was, it was a horrific life that she had. And in her mind, she says, I know if I just come up to the Lord and if I touch the hem of his garment, and back then the hem is where someone's authority was, was generated from the Jewish culture. Like in the military today, we have stripes on the shoulders and to them it was the hem of his garment. If I just touch the hem of his garment, I know I'll be healed. And so she works her way through the crowd as Jesus is on his way to, to raise this little girl from the dead. And, and she, you know, pushes herself through and she's having to be bolder and not be in the shadows like she had for probably the last 12 years. And she reaches out and she touches the hem and she realizes something has changed in her and the procession stopped. And Jesus turns and looks and goes, who touched me? I've been discovered. He's going to reject me just like everyone has rejected me. He's going to, he's going to call me unclean just like everyone else has called me unclean. He's going to treat me just as bad as everybody else has. He's going to be offended that I would actually reach up with my unclean hand and touch the hem of his garment. Finally, finally, when she confessed and says, it's I who touched you, he says, be of good cheer, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And the woman was made well from that hour on. Who is this this, this guy who does this? Who is this person? Follows the Jewish leader, picks the girl up by the hand. She's healed. After that, two blind men come to him crying out, wanting to be healed. He touches their eyes. Uh, The mute are all of a sudden able to speak. And it just continues on and on and on about who this Jesus is. One of my favorite ones, it's a few chapters later when Jesus finds out that John the Baptist has been beheaded, he's troubled and he pulls away by himself and he just wants to spend some time alone. He needs a little vacation, he needs some downtime, he needs to, to kind of deal with this blow that has happened because this unbelievably wonderful man, John the Baptist, who Jesus said was the last of the Old Testament prophets and the greatest man who ever lived, had now been beheaded. And he pulls away by himself just to spend some time alone, some me time. I mean, I deserve some me time. I deserve some time by myself. You and I have that kind of attitude. I just, I just would you get the kids out of here and can I just have some me time? I just need some time alone. Not selfish, just what's required. Jesus had the same need. And we find out that the multitudes know where he's at, and the multitudes don't know what Jesus' needs are, so they they follow him. And when he sees these multitudes of thousands of people following him, encroaching on his quiet time to pull away by himself, it says, 
that he realizes that they also have a need, and he feeds them all with just some fish, barley loaves, and a few salt fish. Again, what kind of kingdom is this? This gospel of the kingdom, where the king says, I don't need to worry about things on this earth, that if I seek the gospel of the kingdom and his righteousness, and I stay connected to the king of kings and the Lord of lords, that he will take care of everything. Because his power transcends natural law. He heals lepers. He heals centurion servants. He calls people like Matthew. People touch the hem of his garment. They bring people out and lay them in the streets. And as Jesus heals them all, raises people from the dead, feeds thousands of people with just enough food for, for me and maybe my wife. How is that possible? What is this kingdom like? Is it worth my total allegiance? Is it worth me becoming obsessed with this Jesus? Is it worth me becoming an activist for him, an extremist for him? Yes, that's exactly how the early church functioned. They saw a glimpse of the glory of who he is. And I'm not talking about just the glory that was manifest to just a few of them on the Mount of Transfiguration. John 1.14 says that we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten Son of God, full of grace, full of truth, full of everything. For the rest of the month of April, and possibly longer than that, we're not going to be able to fellowship with um, people more than 10 in a group. As a matter of fact, in North Carolina, South Carolina, the latest studies have come out and said that the death peak because of the coronavirus will hit somewhere between the 25th and 27th of April. And so if the, the number of, or the graph of the number of deaths peak at that particular point in time, three weeks from now, then it'll be some time after that as the graph goes down before I believe they're going to release some of the social distancing which means before people or a lot of people are able to go back to work, which means that a lot of stuff that fills our days, what are we going to do because I've got all these demands on us, will pick back up again. Because right now, for many of us, we have more time to do things that we need to do that we were unable to do because of the demands of just the society placed on us. If you have teenage boys and they're going to karate practice almost nightly like my grandkids go, or, or we have meetings at church and, and choir practice and we have you know secular kind of stuff that we don't go to, all that's been put aside for a season. And we have a time to sit back and really reflect on who this Jesus is. And why do we want to spend the rest of our life? Are we willing to follow him explicitly? Could we, in our own lives, have a devotion to him that is so great because we've seen his glory and we want to be, embrace his kingdom that the world would call us a fanatic? By the way, do you, do you know what the definition of a fanatic is? This is my definition. A fanatic is someone who's more committed to Christ than you are, because we always make us the benchmark. Anything below our commitment to Christ, again, using a 1 to 10 scale, if we're an 8 or even if we're a 10, anything below us, of course, is, is lukewarm, but anything greater than us has to be a fanatic with a negative phrase on that, because if not, it makes us feel guilty for not trying to achieve that level of intimacy. We would look at these disciples and we would, we would view them like 
cultish leaders. You're, you're leaving everything to, to follow this, this doctrine and this man, and, and I, just, I just don't understand it. Are, are you brainwashed, or are you a fanatic? Are you an extremist? Yes. Yes, I am, for his kingdom. His kingdom is, is greater than anything. I'm willing to do anything and forsake all for something far greater than anything this world offers me this kingdom of God. Over the next couple of weeks, I want to encourage you to pray that God will begin to reveal to you through Scripture and maybe through your own experience what the glory of Christ is all about. He's not, he's not a two-dimensional character. He's not, he's not someone that you just look in a movie or read historical facts about in the Scripture. It's a living breathing God, who in the person of the Holy Spirit has chosen to live inside of you. And he rules his kingdom by his glory. And if you and I can embrace the fact that we stay committed to him and love him and adore him because of his glory, everything changes. Everything changes. Ask the Lord this week to, as Moses did when God passed by, to show me your glory, to give me a fresh glimpse of who you are. And you will find that you can follow a man like this. You can leave all to a man like this. You can embrace his kingdom with reckless abandon, and there's no telling what he'll do in our lives. Amen? Let me pray.